In this session, we are actually, and some of you might not believe me, we're going to be ambitious and try and do these, the first two elements of both the heat and the thorns. We're going to try and do those together. So buckle in and uh, we'll, we'll try to make our way through it. Just again, a brief review where we've been. Changes destination, we're headed towards heaven. Changes power comes when we realize that we are married and united with Christ. A changes method, it happens through biblical community, through relationships. Nobody changes in a vacuum. You can't isolate yourself in the Christian life. And then we talked about changes location. Where does it happen? It happens in the heart. Now, the fifth building block is, is there a roadmap to change? Is there an actual place in Scripture that if we can't get a, a 10-point how-to list on how to change, can we at least find a spot in Scripture that describes what's going on? And, and I think that we can. I think that we can get there through Jeremiah 17, uh, verses 5 through 10. So if you have your Bibles, turn over with me, and I think it's actually in your handout there for you, so you can always read it there in the handout. Uh, Jeremiah 17, listen to what Jeremiah writes. He says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes. For its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart, and I test the mind to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds." So what you see, I think, in this passage is you begin to see, I'd say, a gospel roadmap for what change looks like. And there are four elements that we'll spend our time in this session talking about the first two, and then in our session after lunch, we'll talk about the last two. You begin to see that there is the heat, uh, right? There's this heat that both bears down on this thorn bush and also bears down on this tree that bears fruit. Now, the irony that we see in the Jeremiah 17 passage is that when the heat bears down on the, the fruit tree, there's no, there's no water, there's no, there's no sustenance for it per se. When the heat bears down on it, it actually does what? It actually flourishes. Why? Because it says its roots are connected to what? To streams of living water. But this, this other tree over here on the right, this thorn bush, this bramble bush, as it were, when the heat of life presses in on it, what does it do? It kind of crumbles, right? It, it bears bad fruit. Why? Because its trust, its worship is centered on what? It's centered on itself. It's not centered on the Lord. And the element that is implicit that we're not, that's probably not as explicit in the passages, well then, what's the key then? How do we actually get to these streams of living water? How do we actually connect to that? And we actually talked about this a little bit last night in, in a smaller group setting where we, we talked about Jesus Christ is the living water. He is the key that enables us to turn from this thorn bush over here on the right to becoming a person who in the same heat, in the same situation, can actually bear fruit. So that's what we're going to do now is we're going to talk about the heat and we're going to talk about the thorns. So we're going to talk about these two constituent elements. So let's break down the first part of this paradigm, which is the heat. What is the heat? What is Jeremiah talking about? The heat is your current situation. 
The heat is the current situation that you're in. It is the world that you live in. Now, it shouldn't surprise us, but I think that it does surprise many of us that the current situation that we are in, it's not a good one. And, and we need to know that. Uh, again, in Romans chapter 8, let me read you how Paul describes our big picture situation. Romans eight nineteen through 22. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Okay? That's the world that we live in. It's frustrated. It is in bondage. It has been subjected to futility, right? What you don't hear from Paul saying is, hey, you live in a world where things go right all the time and where people in your life uh, really like you and they affirm you and they're really easy to live with. And everything in your world kind of is oriented towards your happiness and towards your comfort, right? That's not what he says. He actually says, no, the world that you live in is broken and it is yearning and crying out for redemption. So what does the heat look like in your life? Here's some questions that, again, if you're having trouble maybe connecting the dots of what we're talking about, here's some questions that, that get us a little bit closer for you. What is the heat? Again, what's your situation? What are your circumstances? The heat's not always bad either, right? The heat is just, again, what's your situation? Are there good things right now in your life, right? A lot of times, good things come into our life, and that reveals something about our hearts, right? What, what pressures are you facing right now? What's in your world? Who's in your world? Suffering, death, sickness. Who's, who's opposing you? Who's supporting you? What forces of darkness seem to be arrayed against you? Maybe even take a moment right now and mentally start to tick off some different things right now. If I, if I asked you and I said, hey, what is the heat in your life right now? What's pressing in on you, right? What does that look like? That's actually going to help move us towards a holistic paradigm of change because once we can understand that the heat in our life actually serves a purpose and it's not random, it actually helps us, I think, to better deal with the current situation that God has placed us in. Now, to help us get a little bit of a better handle on does Scripture actually speak well and speak wisely about our situation and not in a way that, that kind of blows past the human experience, I thought it would be great for us to do a little bit of an exercise from Psalm 88. And I think that on, your, on the next page there, I actually included the entirety of the text for you from Psalm 88. Yeah, do you guys see that? So it should just be recounted there for you. You guys probably know the, the, the background of Psalm 88. It's the darkest psalm in the entire psalm book. Uh, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. It just ends on a very dark note. Darkness is my closest friend. But here's what I want you to just take a few minutes. I just want you to read it, and I want you to begin to underline in it just what is he going through? What is he experiencing? What what in, when, the, when the heat of life is on him, what's going on in his life? And I'll put a few things up in just a few minutes as we go through it together. But just read through it and just start to underline some things. How does he experience the heat of life?
One of the great things you know about Psalm 88 is that we actually know who wrote it. It's this guy named Heman, the Ezraite. We don't know a lot about him, but there's some other places in Scripture where we know about at least probably what his role was there in the temple. Uh, Heman, the Ezraites, talked about in 1 Chronicles 2.6 and in 1 Chronicles 15.19. In terms of what, what, what did the sons of Korah do, what was, what was maybe his role, and we begin to see that, that Heman was a part of this group in the temple that they were kind of like the modern-day worship day directors for the temple. They'd lead people in song. And why I think that's helpful is that Heman isn't like a Christian, you know, on the fringes. He's actually in the inside. He's actually a part of the community. He's maybe in some ways we might say an analog is he's involved in church leadership. I mean, he's, he's in it. He's got good theology. He knows what's right. He knows what's true. And yet when we get to Psalm 88, we actually realize he is somebody who is struggling. We don't know exactly what the heat is in Heman's life. You get a little bit of maybe some hints and some clues when some of the verses talk about people that are really close to him have shunned him or have maybe stood away from him, the, the commentators begin to say that, that someone in his life really did something to him, maybe betrayed him, let him down. But the experience is what we're after. You know, here are some, here are some things that, that I came up with as you look at Psalm 88. You know, how does Heman, the Ezraite, a real man at a real spot in time, how does he deal with the heat in life? And again, these were probably things that you underlined as well. I mean, verses 1 through 2, I mean, he's crying. There's tears. There's emotion, right, as he's experiencing what's going on. He feels a sense of deep inner despair, and he, he doesn't pull any punches. He says, listen, I feel like I've been to hell. That's how bad my suffering is. That's how bad my anguish is. And not only that, but in verses 6 and 7, you, you begin to realize that he thinks that God's actually done this to him, which at, at, at one level we would say, okay, God is sovereign and sovereignly directs all things, but, but Heman feels in a, in a very particular way that maybe God has singled him out you know, for, for affliction. You know, God has put him in this predicament. In verse 8, all of his friends are gone. He feels trapped. He feels helpless. He has feelings of dying and no one comes to help. Uh, he feels like God has turned his back on him. Bad things are always happening to him. You, you look there at verses 15 through 17. He says, afflicted and close to death from my youth up, right? One of the aspects sometimes of how, how the heat can get misinterpreted is that we can, we can exaggerate it. We can overemphasize it, right? And, and Heman maybe gets there a little bit closer. You know, he says, listen, this has always been my lot in life, essentially. My life's always been horrible. It is, it's not just one bad day. This has been my entire life from as long as I can remember. Uh, verse 18, he wakes up every morning in a dark world. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me, and my companions have become darkness, right? It's, it's a fascinating psalm for us to have in the psalm book, right? Because we realize that in many ways that what Heman does for us is he captures the experience of what life in a broken world with broken people and with a broken body, what that looks like, right? Now, hold your finger there, and I want you to turn over to the book of James. Turn over to James chapter 1. If what we just read is man's view of the heat, I want you to read now what God's view of those exact same situations are. Again, this is a passage that's probably super familiar for all of you. In James chapter 1, verse 2, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. When we maybe switch perspectives, right, not just from understanding the heat from our vantage point, but when when we see the heat from God's perspective, we actually can look at the same set of circumstances, the same situation, but actually come to a different conclusion, right? We can share Heman's concerns, but arrive at a different conclusion, right? He says, listen, you've made my beloved and all of my close friends Uh, escape or betray me and leave me, and I'm just stuck here with darkness. God says, listen, that's all true. That has happened to you, but I actually want to take you behind the curtain. I actually want to tell you and show you what's going on behind the scenes and what I'm after. Number Verse 2, trials are certain. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when, not if, right? That, That from God's perspective, part of the heat is a fundamental reality of our existence. It's not an if of, are you going to go through heat? Listen, you are in heat. You are embedded into a world, into a family of origin, into a context, into a place where bad things happen, where we struggle with suffering, the sins of other people in our own sins. But we also see from the James passage is that trials are beneficial that there's something about the suffering, there's something about the way that our world works, that God isn't going to waste those things, that there's something about the heat that is actually part and parcel of God's design for the maturing of our faith, for actually changing us, right? That might be another way we'd say it. But verse 5 is the kicker. The only way I'm convinced that you'll be able to understand this and get this is if you have the wisdom of God. In verse 5, I think oftentimes gets misinterpreted and taken out of context a lot. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And I was kind of, you know, when I grew up uh, hearing James 1.5 preached, it was kind of preached in the context of, you know, hey, do you have a math test tomorrow? Like, hey, pray and ask God for wisdom, and, you know, tomorrow on the math test you'll get it. Or, hey, you need help with your spelling words? Hey, just pray and ask God for wisdom, and tomorrow, you know, you're going to know all the spelling words, right? It was kind of like this genie in a bottle type of verse, like, hey, if you ever get yourself stuck in a hard spot, just ask God, and he's going to just dispense wisdom down to you. That's not really the context of the verse, The context of the verse is embedded in, listen, we don't understand trials the way that God does, right? Do do any of you, honestly, when you're in the midst of trials, say, man, praise God. Thank you, God, that I have a flat tire right now and that, you know, I've got four screaming kids in the van that all want to be fed and now I'm on the side of the road and, you know, I've got to call AAA to come rescue me, right? I mean, if you do do that, then you're really holy and we all need to learn from you, but that's not how I respond to trials, right? I don't respond to difficulties and hardships like that. But you know what I do need? I need the wisdom of God to help and orient and recalibrate to help me understand that everything that I'm going through is actually a part of God's design for me. That what God is doing, that what God is working through in my situation and through the people in my life and through my circumstances is actually for my good. I don't think humanly we understand that or get that, which is why we need the wisdom of God. Paul Tripp and Tim Lane, talking about Psalm 88 and the interplay between 88 and James 1, say it this way. They say Psalm 88 and James 1 both remind us that the Bible speaks of a real God who meets and comforts real people in the midst of difficulty in the real world. 
Psalm 88 emphasizes that God knows and that he understands what we are going through. And James 1 provides an example of a pastor applying this truth to the lives of people that he dearly loves. In both passages, the reality that he does acknowledge and responded to in ways that are truly liberating. We are not alone. God does understand us, right? In, in some ways, Psalm 88 and James 1 could be talking about the exact same thing, but from completely different perspectives, right? Psalm 88 describes it from our vantage point of how we oftentimes interpret and view things. And James 1, 2 is the much-needed perspective of this is, this is who your God is, and this is what he is up to. So if we can summarize it in maybe some summary statements, here's the first one. Our situations, then, are always significant, but they're never determinative of our responses. And that's the key. A lot of times we'd say, well, no, our situation, our family of origin, our context does determine our circumstance, or our responses, rather. But that's not true. Our situation is significant. God hears our situations. He empathizes with us. He draws near to us in them. But they're not determinative of our responses, right? We, we actually have free will and choice to respond to those circumstances in a way that pleases God. And as we'll see a little bit later, in ways that oftentimes are, are sinful and, and are not what God calls us to. Number two, God uses our situations and our circumstances for his glorious purposes and sanctification. God uses our situations and our circumstances for his glorious purposes, right? A lot of us don't want the heat in our life, right? We would actually prefer to not have that piece of the puzzle in our life, right? We don't want to have to live with broken people in a broken world. We would like things to just align up for our sanctification uh, in a way that wouldn't cause us any discomfort or any hardship, but God is actually going to use our situation and our circumstances for his purposes in sanctification. And number three, the Bible is honest about the hardship of our situations and our circumstances in a way that doesn't overemphasize them nor underestimate them, right? The Bible never speaks in a way that says, hey, just get over it, okay? Suck it up. It's not that bad. There are people in Africa who are starving. You've got it good. Buck up and just keep going. Right? You, you don't get that. You don't get that from Scripture. You don't, you don't get in Scripture a God who, who devalues your suffering, who that, that, that underestimates the situation that you're going through, right? So when you, when you read a Genesis 16 and you see Hagar is in an abusive relationship with her employer, right, that, that, that God comes to her and that Hagar, right, a, a Gentile woman becomes the first woman who actually calls on God, who God sees and hears and, and, and draws near to, right? God is concerned about our situation, but God also doesn't overemphasize our situation at the expense of our responses in what he's calling us to do. He doesn't ever say, oh, your situation's too hard, so you're going to get a free pass on, on, on following me or on trusting me or being faithful to me, right? He never says, listen, you're going to be so overcome by your situation that I'm also not going to give you the grace that you need to be able to go through this suffering, to go through this season of suffering or trial or hardship and, and to be able to go through it well and to go through it wisely. Number four, from the greatest joys to the most crushing sorrows, God understands the full range of human experience. God gets it. He gets the full range of, of human experience. Do I need to go back one more? There we go. He understands the full range of human sorrows. The most crushing sorrows... I, I tell people oftentimes, you know, suffering is not a competitive sport, right? 
And a lot of times we can think to ourselves like, oh, my suffering's not as much as this suffering. Or, you know, there are a lot of people who have suffered a lot more. You know, I'm not like the Apostle Paul. I've never been shipwrecked. I've never been in prison. I've never received lashes. And so we can sometimes mitigate our suffering. Again, you don't get that from Scripture. God sees the full range of human suffering. You know, you, you, you get everything from the inconsiderations of other people that bump up into our world and our life. You get, you get the, the intimate jealousies of Joseph's brothers and how that creates relational discord between Joseph and his brothers. You get, you get the difficulty of living with an employer who is constantly sexually harassing you like with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Uh, you, you get the difficulty of, of Abigail uh, living with a, a really difficult and oppressive husband. Uh, you get the dynamic, right, of, of everything that, that's on that end to the other end of, of human suffering, right? Where you see people with chronic illness, where you see people with chronic suffering, people who have been blind since birth, who are lame, who can't walk, etc. You get the full range of everything but you also get a Savior who knows what that's like and who's able to be a sympathetic mediator for us. God's honesty then about these experiences invites me to be honest then about the things that I face, right? That's what Psalm 88 is such a wonderful uh, piece for us for, is that there's no glossing over the bad stuff of life. There's no glossing over the heat in our life. Heman the Ezraite is very open and honest. God, what's going on? And in many ways, you, you begin to realize that people throughout Scripture are saying this. You look at Job and Job 9. Job 9 is a wonderful chapter. You know, Job is saying, listen, where are you? Show up. You know, you, you just passed by me like a ship in the night. He's like, I'm, I'm like nothing to you. Why won't you come down and talk to me and show up, right? That's, that's the benefit of Scripture is that there are people like you and I who have struggled and who have struggles like you and I do. But the next one, this next summary statement, though, is so important. Going to God, though, with my despair and my doubt and my fear then becomes an act of faith. You know what the one bright light in Psalm 88 is? You know what it is? And it's a self-revealing one. It's that he goes to God in prayer. That in the midst of his suffering, the one thing that he can do is that he can turn up and pray to God. Right? Going to God with all of my despairs, all of my doubts, all of my fears is an act of faith. Whatever it is then about the heat, right, and the way that God is going to use that in our lives, Scripture then is going to move us even closer to say, okay, not only am I going to use this heat in your life, but what comes out of you when that heat bears down on you, that's going to tell me something about what's in your heart. And so whatever it is, the Bible shows us that when we react to the heat in our hearts and through our behaviors, that when we're focusing on ourselves, when we're just trusting in ourselves and not trusting in the Lord, that what comes out is, is what? Is bad fruit. And that's what the Jeremiah passage is talking about. Uh, Paul Tripp goes on to say this. He says, you and I are never really passive. He says, we are always acting, reacting, and responding to the heat in our lives. And this begins to move us in then to the second constituent element of that diagram where we saw the heat, the thorns, the cross, and the fruit. The heat is your situation. It's what you're up against. The thorns is how do you respond to the heat in a sinful way, in a way that ignores the present promises of a Savior who draws near to you. 
And Tripp is saying, well, first of all, we need to understand that nobody's passive. Every single one of you is responding. Every single one of you right now, your heart is actively at work responding to the circumstances that we're going through. Now, we live in a culture, though, that loathes responsibility for our responses and for our actions. And so it's much easier to explain away our responses and our, our actions and our behaviors on other things or how we were brought up or on our bodies. There are two main ways I think that culture explains away our responses, the first of which is what we'd call nature, the nature-nurture uh, split. In nature, it's told that our bodies are what exercise primary influence over our thoughts, decisions, and behaviors. You don't really have personal agency. It's really not your fault. This is just how you were born. This is just a matter of your body. Your body did this to you, and you have no control over it, right? That's, that's what I would say probably is the reigning methodology right now in secular mental health is it's the body, it's nature. Everything is neurological. Everything is your body. Your body is the most important thing. But the other side, the other way that we kind of explain away our responses is the opposite of that, which is the nurture model. Right, the nurture model says this, of your environment and your family of origin is actually what exercises primary influence over your thoughts and your decisions and your behaviors. This was actually probably what Freud's greatest contribution to, to mental health was, right? He said, listen, it's all about your family of origin. It's all about environmental determinism. You know what? If you had a bad family growing up or came from a broken home or you had a dad who was an alcoholic, then that's, that's in many ways probably going to shape and form and determine who you are today as an adult, right? And so what we see then is that culture likes to take our responses to the heat in our life, and instead of allowing us to take responsibility for those actions, we like to put them off on either something else or something that we don't have control over, either nature or through nurture. Now, Paul Tripp and Tim Lane write this in terms of how do we reconcile both of those together, and they say this, they say, while external conditions, that would be what? Nurture. While external conditions can be influential in our lives and should not be ignored, the Bible says that they're only the occasion for sin and not the cause. Difficulties in life do not cause sin. Our background, relationships, situation, physical condition, again, that's, that's nature. They only provide the opportunity for our thoughts, words, and actions to reveal whatever is already in our hearts. Right? It comes back to this. Why does water come out of this bottle? Right? The heat is what? The heat is me squeezing on the bottle. Right? The water inside, right, white comes out, it's, it's, it's here. In, in secular psychology and secular mental health says, well, no, the reason why the water comes out is because you're squeezing. It's because of the external pressures. It's because of the, the family of origin that you came from, your background, or whatever it might be. And what Paul Tripp and Tim Lane are saying is they're saying, listen, those are important. They can be significant, but they never are determinative of your response. The determination for how you're going to respond to the heat of life starts where? It starts primarily in the heart. Now, I want to take you to a passage where we'll see this play out. Turn over, or maybe you're already there. Just keep reading in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. And I want to draw up for you a little bit of a diagram that we'll do some work with now. In James 1, 13 through 15, James gives us what I'll call really the most comprehensive inner pathology for why do we do what we do? Why does sin happen? How does it actually get externalized out into action? 
In verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death, right? So what James is saying is he's continuing on his discussion about trials and temptation. That word in the Greek is the exact same word. Trials and temptation is the exact same Greek word, but get translated differently based off of their context. And what James is saying is that, listen, the heat in your life can become an occasion for steadfastness, for your faith to grow, for you actually to mature as a Christian, if you respond the way that God's called you to, or... That same trial can provide an occasion and can provide a context for you to what? For you to fall into sin. And so he's going to begin to show you this inner pathology, as it were, of how does this process take uh, take place. And you begin to realize that right over here on the right-hand side, this is where it gets externalized. But these, these three parts right here are all happening where? They're all happening inside, right? And so you begin to see that that James is saying, listen, there is an initial temptation. There's an initial temptation that begins to to, to start off in your heart. And there's something where that temptation uh, begins to lure you away. And those two words there, lured away and enticed, they were fishing terms, right? It's the idea of, you know, a fish is going along in the water and it sees the glint of a lure and it just starts to swim towards it, right? There's this attraction that starts to move towards this fishing lure because he thinks it's something good, but it's actually something bad. And you get to enticed, it's this idea of the fish just... It gets hooked. It takes the bait. And then the process then is that it moves forth to death. Uh, we know that irony is a huge part of James's writing. It's one of the ways that he tries to make sense out of things and tries to communicate things to his readers. And so there's this irony, right, that normally a birthing process brings forth what? Life, right? And James is saying, well, here's the irony of the process of sin is that this birthing process actually brings forth what? It actually brings forth death actually enslaves you, it actually ensnares you, right? Now, this middle process right here we know from temptation to being lured away to being enticed, I don't know about you, but in my heart, this can happen within the time and space of seconds. Like, this is like nanoseconds, right? I talked to a a family, one of the first marriage counseling cases that happened uh, that I had at Parkside. It was a husband and a wife, dear family. Both of them worked outside of the home. They didn't have kids, and uh, they had two golden retrievers. And the golden retrievers uh, just shed everywhere. I mean, there was just dog hair all over their house. And the wife uh, and the husband had a lot of different conflict about a lot of different things. You know, hey, he never helps me around the house. I come home after a long day of work, and I just have to do everything. So it's like I leave one job, and I come home to another job. He just sits at home, and he just sits on the couch, watches TV, just expects me to do everything. We just worked through a lot of those different things, tried to build community, build relationship, help them understand each other. There was one, one particular thing, though, that just really was a source of conflict, and it was the dogs. It was the dog here. She says, you know, I come home, and I just wish he would vacuum. He would just sweep up, right? It doesn't take him that long to just pull out the vacuum cleaner and just vacuum a little bit so that I don't have to do it. Just pick up and sweep up the dog here. And, and she said, I'll, I'll come home in a moment. And she goes, as soon as I walk through the door, she goes, if I don't see vacuum lines on the carpet, she goes, I get so ticked off at him. She goes, I get so angry. She goes, I immediately shut down on him. And so what we did is we went here to James 
through 15, right? And we tried to map this out, right? This initial temptation, right, is, hey, she wants things to, to be clean. She wants things to be in order. She wants some help around the house. Is that a bad thing, women? No, it's not a bad thing. But as we learned last time, that good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. And so in the time and space, when she unlocks the front door of her house, right, she gets lured away and enticed right here that this is something that she deserves, right? He needs to do this for her. If he, and this is what she told me. She goes, if he really loved me, he would do this, right? Doesn't he know this? Doesn't he know this matters to me? If he really loved me, then he'd do it for me. I don't understand why I have to keep begging him for it. And so then he would come home to a wife that was very cold towards him, who was hypercritical of him. And, and again, in his mind, he didn't see, he wasn't able to connect the dots. But this entire time, every single day when she's coming home, she is playing out this inner pathology of sin, right? So all of the focus, right, took place on the outside of where their conflict would lie, about how they were constantly in conflict with one another, and they never, they never addressed this. They never addressed really what was inside and what was driving it, right? The dogs... And the lack of vacuum lines was only the context that revealed what? What was already here, right? The dogs weren't making this woman sin against her husband. Does that make sense, right? The vacuuming or the lack thereof is not the reason why she gets mad at her husband, right? It's only providing the occasion and the context for her sinful heart in the moment that's not trusting in the Lord to receive what she needs to to respond in the way that it does. And friends, that's why it's so important. I think that's why James is so helpful in laying out this inner progression for us. If we, if we take this then, if we take this inner pathology and we begin to try to make some categories of, well, how does this sin and how do these thorn bush responses actually work itself out? Let me try to give you some helpful categories to think out. Some of us, when the heat of life bears down on us, we tend to deny, avoid, and escape. We don't want to deal with the heat of our life. And you see things, uh, or at least these are the types of things I see in counseling. Things, you know, pornography, sexual addiction, self-injury, suicide, right? Life is hard. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with my wife. I don't want to deal with my husband. So I'm going to go get an erotic novel. I'm going to go look at something on the internet. I'm going to, I'm going to do something that kind of numbs me to the pain of life, Right? Some of us, our sin or our thornbush responses express itself out in that type of category. We tend to deny, avoid, and escape. Another category. Some of us do the opposite. Instead of denying, avoiding, escaping, we tend to magnify and expand and catastrophize. We see a lot of issues with anger and rage and abuse and various personality disorders, right? Right, where, where instead of responding to the heat of life in a more measured way, in a way that is, is in keeping with the circumstances in the context of the situation, we tend to overemphasize or we tend to magnify or catastrophize it, right? And, and you might think of a Jonah situation, right? In Jonah chapter 4, God says, hey, this, this doesn't really make sense. Like, I just forgave the entire city of Nineveh because they repented. Like, you should be really happy. And Jonah's like, no, I just want to die. Just take my life from me, right? That's a magnifying, catastrophizing type response, right? He doesn't want that. Another category is some of us become prickly or hypersensitive. 
right? Some of us, what do you do when the heat of life bears down on you? You just get really prickly. You know, I'll see uh, men and women in counseling. It's just, I'll try to make the observation. I'll say, listen, you, you, there are not people in your life that are going to want to move close to you because it's like trying to get close to a porcupine. You're, you're just so prickly. You're, you're so hypersensitive. There is a bitterness and resentment that just oozes out of you. Right? You probably know people like this, or maybe you're related to someone like this, where just everything is bad. Nobody can do anything right. Everything is wrong. Everything is just, you know, it's like you're walking around, again, what I'll hear in marriage counseling, it's like I'm walking around on, what, eggshells, or my marriage is like a minefield. I never know when I'm going to get blown up. And, and, and both of those, those are horrible analogies, right? You know, but a lot of times, because of the way that we respond to the heat of our life, we can get very prickly, very hypersensitive, a lot of jealousy, a lot of envy. Another category, some of us are just, we return evil for evil, and this is a category that Paul seems to hone in on at the end of Romans 12. You're you're someone who can be very vengeful. And again, you might think of vengeance in like a I don't know, like a, a Marvel comic type of way, like, you know, somebody in your life got killed and now they need to be avenged, and it's like that type of vengeance. You actually need to dial it back down to vengeance is just simply saying, you didn't do something for me, so I'm going to retaliate against you. You know, you didn't talk to me the way that I wanted to. You didn't respond. You didn't give me the praise that I wanted to. And so now I'm going to do something to just kind of just poke you a little bit. You see a lot of sexual intimacy problems with couples really have their roots in vengeance, right? You're not doing what I want you to, so I'm going to withhold something from you that I know is important to you, that's meaningful to you. Vengeance, manipulation, silent treatment, lack of forgiveness, right? I put the lack of forgiveness in a return evil for evil because as Christians we are called to forgive, right? Some of us, we don't believe Romans 12 where it says, listen, vengeance is not yours. It's in the realm of God. Some of us don't believe that. We actually think that we're a more righteous judge than God is, and we actually want to take his place on the throne, and we want to dispense out justice. Some of us are like that. We're return evil for evil. Others of us, how do you respond to the heat? You, you tend to actually suffer more. You don't lash out. You actually get bogged down. You get captured. You get paralyzed. Again, you think about the big three, like anxiety, fear, depression, OCD, all of those disorders. That's what the heat of life does to you. When the heat of life bears down on you, that's what happened to Heman the Ezraite. Right? When, when his best friend leaves him, when all of his friends desert him, you know what it does to him? He just sinks into despair. Maybe that's you. Maybe when the hard issues of life come to you, you just shut down. It's, it, 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 it's angst-inducing. You have a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. Maybe you just get tied up in circles. You cycle. There's an obsessive, compulsive way that, that you deal with stress and trauma and difficulty in your life. Others of you in here, you're a little bit more Christianized in how you respond to the heat of life, so it maybe looks good on the outside, but its roots are in what the Pharisees did. It's this self-excusing self-righteousness, right? So when the heat of life comes on you or when things don't go your way, your default is judgmentalism, legalism, comparison, blame-shifting, right? You're never the problem. It's never about your responses. It's always somebody else's responses. You know, you're a constant blame-shifter just like Adam was. You know, it's never you that's in the wrong. So when bad things happen, well, it's not because of you. It's not because of anything that you did. It's because of someone else or what somebody else did. So all I'm saying is these are just some helpful categories that can be helpful to you to begin to say, okay, where, 
where, where do my thorn bush responses, where do they seem to be located? Is there any type of category? Um, and maybe you start to put some check marks next to these, and maybe even do that right now. Look at those categories. What would you say most accurately captures what is your default response to the heat of life? Ask your spouse. They probably could tell you <laughs> if you don't know. You know, how do I tend to respond? How do I tend to respond when things in my life don't go my way? Do I lash out? Do I shut down? Do I blow up? Do I clam up? Uh, am I a fake? Do I return evil for evil? Do I manipulate? Do I escape into pornography? Do I have a completely hidden life that nobody in this room knows about? Do I have a gambling problem? Do I have a substance abuse problem? Do I get bogged down? Do I get captured? Do I have obsessive thoughts that nobody would know about if, if I didn't tell them? Another way that we can come at it, and you guys can just jot these down for, for fun, there are many lists in Scripture where, where the New Testament writers will just list off just what I'll call thornbush responses, just ways and categories that we tend to get tripped up, ways that we get ensnared. We read one of them, Mark seven twenty one through 23, but they're all throughout the New Testament, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians, Timothy, 1 John. Again, if you need help, that can be a little bit of an access point to you too, to say, okay, where do I show up in these? What ensnares me? What entangles me? What captures the affections of my heart in the heat? I think I included for you this Richard Sibbs uh, poem, and we'll close our time together with this. But I think it's a helpful reminder because a lot of times when I do this teaching, this is probably the low point in the teaching because it's a little bit depressing to talk and to think so, uh, so particularly about our sin and about how we respond to the difficulties of life. And so I think it's encouraging for us to, to also remind ourselves that, hey, after lunch, we're going to be moving towards the cross. After lunch, we're going to be moving towards what is our hope in Christ so that we don't stay on the thornbush side, but that we start to begin to bear fruit. Richard Sibbs, one of my favorite Puritans, he says, It were an easy thing to be a Christian if religion stood only in a few outward works and duties, but to take the soul to task, to deal roundly with our own hearts, to let conscience have its full work, to bring the soul into spiritual subjection unto God, this is not so easy a matter. Because the soul, out of self-love, is loath to enter into itself, lest it should have other thoughts of itself than it would have. Right? What is Sib saying? Here's a little bit of a shorthand. He's saying, listen, if you want to get to the spot where you can bear fruit, you need to know what your thorns are. You need to take your soul to task. If you want to be a person who's serious about change, then you need to know what in your life needs to change, right? Not only do we need to know what we're changing into, you need to know where your own heart is right now. Gordon Dalby puts it like this. He says, to let God meet us where we are, we must, what, know where we are. And such an exercise in truth-telling can oftentimes be painful, right? Friends, why are we spending an entire session talking about, man, how does our heart work itself out in sinful thornbush responses? That's a little bit painful, right? When we started putting up some of those lists, some of you cringed internally because now your sin is out there and we're talking about it and we're seeing it. And what Dalby and what Sibs are saying is, listen, this is actually a part of the change process. To let God meet us where we are, you have to know where you are. And that's a painful thing. 
it's a painful exercise in truth-telling. A lot of us just want to, you know, believe the lie of, hey, we're doing okay. We don't need a lot to change. We're just happy. Everything's good. But we do need to take our souls roundly to task. Uh, we need to think deeply and wisely about who we are and why do we do what we do. So a few questions that we can talk through in the break that can move over into the uh, lunch session. Uh, what are a few things, again, that we're taking away from this session? In response to the heat, again, what are your default thornbush responses? That, I'll tell you that, this. That's a, that's a question that moves us towards Christian community, right? I mean, I don't know if all of you know each other at your table, but I mean, to begin to say, hey, when, when hard things come into my life, I tend to shut down or I tend to lash out or I blow up, I get angry, or I don't know, I've just, I look at my life, I'm actually pretty bitter about how life has turned off. You know, one, one, of my, one of my wife's favorite phrases is that all of us together, we struggle with the slow leak of life, right? That life rarely lives up to expectations because we live in a fallen world. And some of us just get really embittered by that. You know, you're a little bit older and you look at your life, maybe you have children that aren't following Christ, Maybe you're not as, uh, have as nice of a retirement account as you thought you would, and you just kind of feel cheated. You kind of just feel like God's let you down. Some of you, maybe that's, maybe that's how you respond to the heat of life. There's just this laden resentment that you've been shortchanged by God, right? That type of vulnerability, friends, helps build community, right? Because then somebody else at your table inevitably and hopefully says, listen, can, can I pray for you? I pray for you. Is there anything that I could do that would be helpful to you in the midst of that struggle? Number three, using the progression of sin diagram, can you begin to analyze underlying desires which feed those external sinful responses? And again, this builds community, right? Builds builds relationship because it calls into accountability the internal workings of your heart. Hey, you know, this is is the the behind-the-scenes look when things go bad, this is actually the internal conversation that's happening in my heart and in my life. To be able to have that wherewithal to kind of piece out those constituent elements of that progression, that requires maturity. It requires, uh, I'd say, spiritual eyesight to say, okay, I think at the core, this is what I want. I really want control. I'm really after comfort or security or whatever it might be. 